The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. It's nice to be healthy. Those of you who were here last week, I kind of coughed my way through the program. So we're talking about aversion one of the great forces in our world, something to respect, and also something uh, to learn how to include. One of the things we talked about last week for people who weren't around is uh, there's this paradox. On the one hand, it's so clear to us how destructive aversion is in our minds, in our world, how much suffering, how much destruction has come because of our tendencies to resent each other, to want revenge, to want to destroy, to get rid of. And on the other hand, so does anybody want to argue with that? We kind of accept that that's, that's true. And then on the other hand, how pervasive aversion is. It's everywhere. So it's like, uh, how could we imagine a world where we would surgically remove aversion? You know, just, it wouldn't be this world. It would be something else. So as our, you know, like this is what we do. We imagine these utopias where nobody gets angry, nobody gets irritated, nobody has any fear. And then, course, we become endlessly frustrated because that utopia doesn't come to be. And then we start to despair. Maybe I was wrong, you know, maybe there isn't any hope. So we need to trust our perception, I guess, or our understanding that both of these things are true, that aversion can be very destructive. And it's just part of a package. Being a human being means there will be fear, there will be irritation, there will be anger, there will be hatred. And this is uh, where, we, where we begin, really. So last week I read this Buddhist principle of psychology that Jack Hornfield articulates in each of the chapters, this one about aversion, he says, if we cling to anger or hatred, we will suffer. It is possible to respond strongly, wisely, compassionately without hatred. So I think the important thing here is the word, if we cling to anger and hatred, not whether there is anger or hatred. And last week we briefly touched on how one of the reasons we do cling to anger and hatred is in this world we live in, where things are often complex and messy, where whether we're conscious of it or not, certainly just below the surface is a feeling of insecurity and uncertainty and vulnerability that just seems part of life. 
So we cling to anger, we cling to hatred, resentment, because it, it makes us feel powerful. We feel so real when we're angry. Sometimes when I'm at my mom and dad's, I, I go over there on Saturday night to help my dad take care of my mom, who's um, at the end stages of Alzheimer's. And sometimes on Saturday night, there's that program, Everybody Loves Raymond. One of the episodes was uh, about how Raymond uh, wanted to make love to his wife, uh, but you know, his idea of hot sex was when his wife, I forget what her character's name is, uh, is really angry. So she, she had been very angry about his mother, who's often in the picture, and somewhat obnoxious mother-in-law for this woman. And so they had had a, a problematic interaction. And they're in the bedroom, about to go to bed. And Raymond is just reminding her how angry she is at her mother-in-law. So they can have what he calls angry sex. <laughs> but there is, there's a, you know, it's, it's really tragic that often our experience of feeling enlivened in life, feeling alive, feeling like we're connecting, is when we're really full of self-righteousness or full of anger or planning our revenge. Uh, we're going to get even. And, you know, we, we might masquerade or disguise it in some way, like uh, make it seem noble or appropriate. But really, we want to get even, or we want to be, you know, some afflictive, negative emotion that we're riding, kind of riding that wave, and it's making us feel quite real and solid. How many times? How many times even today, reading the news, did our self-righteousness, our anger, or whatever, afflictive state, make us feel more real. So we have to understand this temporary relief we get, a relief from feelings of insecurity, vulnerability, confusion. We gravitate, we pick up the anger over and over again because it helps us feel solid and real. And it, it sort of reinforces this perceptual distortion or perceptual problem that we have, which is we tend to trust things that are really big, like emotions or feeling states that are really big, and we tend to ignore what's subtle. And I've been mentioning to the other groups this simple teaching from one of the early teachers here in the Twin Cities, Shinzen Yang one of the Western Vipassana teachers. He used to come in the late 80s and early 90s and lead the residential retreats for the Twin Cities Vipassana Collective. Still teaching, mostly in LA, a few other places around the country. And the um, Chinzin used to say a lot, subtle is significant. And it's just a basic principle, just in life and in particular in the Buddhist path of awakening. Subtle is significant. What's gross, what's obvious, it's not that it's insignificant, but generally speaking, what's gross and obvious 
is under unfolding from something that's subtle, not so easy to see, not so easy to feel, that with which we're, we're in the habit of ignoring, in the habit of not seeing. So this is related to that point I was just making about how anger, uh, anger hatred, strong, negative, aversive states make us feel sort of real and solid and empowered. But it's like the mind is fixating on what's big, and it just wants to be associated with it, what's intense. You know, anger is an intense emotion. And so I'm going to associate my sense of self with that anger, and then I'll feel intense too. I'll feel real too. I'll feel alive. But, you know, and this is what we talked about last week, we should have it in our bones by now, because not just seeing it in our own lives, but seeing it in those lives around us, how much suffering comes with getting attached, clinging to anger, to angry states, angry mind states, hateful mind states, how much pain is involved in that. No matter the fact that we feel intense and alive, it hurts. And that, I think, I think we can say we know in our bones, it really hurts to be angry. So, being interested in this path, part of what that means is we're starting to develop an intuition that's subtle and significant which means we're willing to start to wean ourselves from what's intense and to cultivate a taste for what's subtle. You know how it is, how we like to feed on intensity. Intense movies, intense conversation, intense food. It has to be big. And then after a while, it has to be bigger. Because what was big doesn't feel very big anymore. You know, like have you ever watched movies from your childhood? You know, they might have seemed intense, like see the original Star Trek series. You know, it might have seemed it did to me. It seemed amazing when we used to watch it. I remember sitting in the basement with all my siblings and watching Captain Kirk and Spock and their amazing adventures. And now, you know, when I watch it, it just seems so. Stupid. <laughs> I don't know if other people, I hope it doesn't offend anybody, you get angry at me. <laughs> but it just seems the plot seems so simplistic, the set so silly and like, uh, like made out of cardboard and, <laughs> and all of that, of course. And you know, now we're addicted, it has things have to be 3D, or they, you know, we need Dolby sound, or we need these so amazingly believable sets and surround screens and you know all the different things that make things more intense for us. So we start developing a callousness. So we it, it, things need to be more and more intense. Now this path of awakening it's about cultivating a sensitivity for what's subtle, an appreciation for what's subtle. And in terms of understanding how to transform our relationship to anger, it means 
we're going we're not trying to destroy the anger we're not thinking the anger's wrong we're just shifting our attention our sensitivity from what's gross about the anger like she did this to me I'm going to get even with him so these ideas these images we have in our mind they're the big gorilla in the room but we can shift from the gross the obvious to what's happening in the moment it's not actually different than the strong images we might have related to the anger but there's strong images but there's also subtle movement in the heart we call these intentions or dispositions or in Pali language we call them samsaras these movements of the heart so there's a subtle movement and that movement in a sense is related to the arising of images the arising of emotion the arising of thought and the interesting thing about these movements in the heart is they're so subtle it just seems so obvious to an untrained human mind that these are relatively insignificant and the images the thoughts I have are relatively important and we have to completely reverse that tendency and to see that the little wiggly iggly uneasiness in the heart that little movement in the heart that uneasiness in the heart that that's actually what's significant the mind the thinking mind the creative mind it can create whole worlds of thought and images around intention around just feeling a little anxious a little uneasy a little pain and if we miss this whole subtle world then we're trapped basically we're we have no choice but to be living out of this very gross world and at this level you know it's conceptual and the trouble with being on this level of concept is how I conceptualize what's going on is most likely going to be different than how you conceptualize what's going on and because it's big and intense and I'm attached identified with it and for you it's big and intense and you're identified with it and we have different concepts different ideas about what's going on there's going to be a lot of clashing and you know what it reinforces the feeling like this is real because it hurts so much you know that but what's really hurting is the mind's identification to it and the mind wanting to protect it from somebody else's view somebody else's concept about what's going on and who's at fault who's the evildoer <coughs> so fixating on the images the ideas is self-reinforcing because we're always bumping up against everybody else it makes it really smart really hurt we feel so justified in being attached and protective and violent and aggressive and we don't learn anything we just basically continue doing what we've done <coughs> so
So let's just reflect on this transition from gross to subtle. And I'll read a little bit from Jack Cornfield's book, The Wise Heart, where he talks about this to some degree. This is on page 208 in his book, The Wise Heart. He's talking about the nature of hate. He says, Aversion, anger, and hatred are states of mind that strike against experience, pushing it away, rejecting what is presented in the moment. They do not come from without. This insight is a reversal of the ordinary way we perceive life. Usually, says Ajahn Chah, which is, uh, Ajahn Chah was one of Jack Kornfeld's teacher, this great Thai monk. Usually, says Ajahn Chah, we believe outer problems attack us. Things are wrong and people misbehave, causing our hatred and suffering to arise. But however painful our experiences may be, they are just painful experiences until we add the response of aversion or hatred. Only then does suffering arise. If we react with hatred and aversion, these qualities become habitual, like a distorted autoimmune response. Our misguided reaction of hatred does not protect us. Rather, it becomes the cause of our continued unhappiness. And this is what I was saying about how when the mind is fixated on the obvious intense feelings, the obvious strong images and thoughts, then it's like other thoughts, in a sense, they, it feels like they're attacking us. You know, I've got a rigid idea about who I am or who you are, and then life continues to happen, and part of what unfolds is like challenges to that strong idea of who I am, who you are, the way it's supposed to be. And it feels like things are coming at me to threaten me because part of who I am is a strong idea. It's like this. So the world, it actually appears as if the world is attacking us. Experience, situations are attacking us. We feel threatened, we feel justified in striking back or cowering, you know, hiding. So the alternative is initially is that, you know, it seems feeble, but it's really useful, which is just to learn to restrain to some degree this addiction, this attachment to what's really obvious. So the intensity of feeling, the intensity of thought, not to try to get rid of it or destroy it, but just not to be confused by it. So to let it move. See, if we can let it move without the mind fixing on the thought, on the strong feeling, on some strong image, if we can let it move, that in a sense opens the door to feel, to know what else is happening in the moment to know what's subtle. We can't know what's subtle when the mind is, you know, the full attention is focused on some idea of injustice and what somebody did to me. So if we're at the level of the story, whatever that might be for you, you might even want to bring to mind something that's a real cause for anger or hatred for you. You know, and when we're focused on the level of thought or the story that involves somebody 
harming us, somebody being wrong. It's so intoxicating, we can't really know anything else. But if we could just let those images, those thoughts come and go, we're not for them, attached to them, we're not against them, thinking that they have to be gone, that they shouldn't be there. We have this neutral or equanimous relationship with the images, the feelings, emotions, and thoughts around anger. And we're just interested in that movement. And then it's, it, this whole world of intention begins to be revealed. What's subtle? Of course, the real reason we don't like to do this is, although it's subtle, it hurts. This is the interesting thing. It's a real insight, actually, I think, how something that's subtle can be so um, unnerving for the mind. I mean, it's it's really amazing how much distraction our minds will pursue. In order to feel, in order to avoid feeling, just a very subtle uneasiness. You know, we could have, have be having a pretty decent day, but there's just a, a subtle anxiety at the back of the heart, back of the mind, or subtle loneliness, feeling of maybe a, a hollowness, like what does it matter? But nothing we're even aware of, just kind of in the background. But sometimes we'll notice like how much stupid TV we'll watch, silly conversations we'll have, and the sort of piddling about we'll do in order to avoid just sitting and recognizing, oh, and this is what's happening. This is what's being felt or being known in the heart. So, for example, around anger, one of that, one of those subtle disturbances we don't like to feel that's often associated with anger, we don't like to feel that we're not in control. Like we don't like that feeling that life is just happening and nobody's really in charge, nobody's really controlling it. So, what we do often is we get angry at what we don't like, what we see that we don't like, as if to sort of bluff our way that, you know, you know, I can, through the power of anger, I can sort of remind myself that I'm actually capable of taking the reins in my hand, making things happen the way they should happen, getting rid of what needs to get rid of, be gotten rid of. But instead, we could just relax and feel that subtle, uneasy feeling that things are just happening on their own. And that this heart, this mind, this body is vulnerable. And it's like this. So we can have a different intention. You know, one intention is, no, this is not okay. This feeling of vulnerability, this feeling of not being in control, it's not okay. And then another intention, maybe obviously wouldn't be the more practiced intention, but there may be another intention. Maybe it is okay to feel vulnerable. Maybe it is okay to live in a world where I'm not in control, where things just happen. 
Sometimes it's nice and sometimes it's not nice. And you see, at this level, when, when the mind is more subtle, we can become aware that there's a choice. I can pick up the intention that, no, this is not okay, ride it into sort of anger, hatred, aversion, or I could just let it be and cultivate the intention, this is how it is. Can this be okay? A more radical acceptance. Now, it doesn't mean that we never act in the world to change things. It just means we're not doing it out of hatred, not doing it out of attachment and identification with some like idea of how the world should be. Because we can act, there are other movements that can be equally strong, as Jack Kornfield suggests in that statement, like the movement of compassion, to want to take care of ourselves and take care of another, or just that, that strong, wholesome fear, like, I don't want anybody to be harmed. You know? Think about what parents do to protect their children. I mean, sometimes out of hatred and anger, but sometimes very forcibly out of love. <coughs> and what makes the difference between something that's destructive and something that's healing is whether we've had the wherewithal to understand what's subtle. There's a, uh, something that's around people been trained in called Nonviolent Communication, started by Marshall Rosenberg. I'm sure many of you have heard of this. It's a really wonderful training in wise, skillful speech. And one of the things I really like about this particular approach is this emphasis on understanding needs. And uh, normally, you know, we're so certain we're so locked into our particular idea of things, the way it is now, what's wrong, what I need, that we never bother to actually check. We, do, we never bother to actually feel in the moment what are our needs. And not only that, you know, what makes it even worse is because we're so oblivious, we're so certain that we can be oblivious to our needs, we are, we are also completely oblivious to the other person, that they have needs. So part, one of the main parts of this training is first and foremost to be able to recognize that in this moment there are needs. There are these movements in my heart, things that are uneasy in my heart. So maybe we have this movement of being lonely right now, however subtle it might be. But wouldn't it be appropriate whether we ever articulate it for anybody else around us, but wouldn't it be appropriate for at least for us to know, if we're feeling lonely, that there is this loneliness and it's like this? Or if we've been, you know, something really, something happened to do that really stung, and we're still feeling that, feeling that pain of that insult or that being dismissed by somebody, and the heart still aches a little bit. Oh. Wouldn't it be useful to know that, to directly know it in the moment? Oh, the heart hurts. The heart feels not loved, not taken care of. The heart feels needy. It's the missing of these subtle uneasinesses 
of the heart that cause so much trouble. And if we could become very fluent, very good at recognizing them, naming them, and even articulating them to those around us where it's appropriate, like to say to our partners, you know, this is how I'm feeling now. I'm feeling really needy. I'm feeling uh, really vulnerable. I'm feeling um, angry. You know, like, I want to hurt you. But it's really, it's really useful to have that on the table. And it'd be really useful for that person to be able to repeat back what they heard. Oh, what I'm hearing is that you're feeling really vulnerable. So that we're really uh, kind of interacting on this level of subtlety. Oh, you have a human heart that has these subtle but very relevant movements. And this is what's moving in your heart now. You know, and then we listen to the other person. Well, this is what's moving in my heart. Oh, what I hear you saying, you know, is that, you know, you you feel like you have to disappear. That you can't handle this right now. This is too much for you. But you need some space. And then this is what allows for true reconciliation and skill, like the skillful community, skillful partnerships. It's really our own fluency at this level, this subtle level, and our own willingness to hear, to recognize, to understand, of course, that other people, they have this whole subtle world too. And all of this gross stuff, this obvious stuff, is flowing out of what's subtle. But we're just oblivious to what's subtle most of the time. And we're arguing and fighting and pushing and pulling about all this stuff on the surface, but it's not really what it's about. What it's really about is that we're hurt, that we're lonely, that we're needy, that we want to be held, that we want to be touched, that we want to be loved, that we want to feel safe. another section, uh, a couple sections from Jack Kornfield's book I wanted to read. He says, we must take a revolutionary step through the profound practice of insight, through non-identification and compassion. We reach below the very synapses and cells and free ourselves from the grasp of these instinctive forces. With dedication, we discover it is possible to do so. And this means when we're at that level of being mindful of what's moving in the heart, then we're no longer being blindly pushed around by these intentions, these tendencies of the heart. Like when we're in pain, the strikeout. That's one of the obvious ones. He goes on, I'm skipping a little bit, and says, Fortunately, we can train ourselves to live with mindfulness, to meet fear and pain with wisdom instead of with habits of aversion and anger. When a painful or threatening event arises, we can open our eyes to it. When we learn to bear our own pain and face our own fears, we will no longer blame and inflict it on others, neither family members nor other tribes. 
With mindfulness instead, with mindfulness, instead of reacting, we can respond with spacious clarity, purpose, firmness, and compassion. A wise response includes whatever action, fierce at times, is most caring toward life, our own and others. Imagine a healthy mind as one that is free from entanglement in any level of hatred. At first, this might seem impossible, an idealistic attempt to impose decorum on our innately aggressive human nature. But freedom from hatred is not spiritual repression. It is wisdom in the face of pain and fear. And so the real gateway to this freedom is to be interested and then ultimately not afraid of what we're feeling in this more subtle way. We have to open that door, we have to invite, in a sense, invite ourselves in, and then learn that it's really okay. And let our life, our life, our choices, our response, see, then it can really flow out of that. Because when we're aware of this subtle level, we're really aware of what's skillful and unskillful. We're not blinded by the obvious habitual patterns, reactive patterns of the mind. We see many more beautiful responses in life. You know, one of the things that kind of struck me recently in the news, I've mentioned this in the earlier groups, with the whole Occupy Wall Street movement that you probably have heard about happening in New York City and other cities, including Minneapolis. And this is also true earlier, a couple years ago, with the Tea Party movement, where a lot of people, mostly from the other side of the political aisle, you know, criticizing these different movements because, you know, their lack of clear vision, maybe they appear to be inconsistent or they appear to be wishy-washy or disorganized or superficial or you know, all the different ways that people dismiss these movements. But the important thing is that when we're willing to honestly recognize that we feel unsettled, you know, a lot of times people's actions aren't going to make sense because it's not about the level of like, this is wrong, this is right. You know, a lot of this idea of certainty, like this is what we should do. I mean, anybody in the room who thinks they know, like whether the Fed should be abolished or continued or given more power or, you know, whether we should do this or do that. I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't have opinions. We need opinions. We need to make choices. But the sense of certainty just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. And one of the things we can do is we can notice what we're feeling, like the feeling that it's time to get together, you know? It's time to get together and talk about what we're feeling. I remember reading one of the articles about, and I know some people in the room are part of the organizing committees. I think this was in terms of New York City, that group there, you know, how many different committees and, you know, this whole idea of horizontal democracy, democratic action, and, you know, it takes a lot of time. So it's not necessarily about 
decisive action. And a lot of times, anger and greed, you know, when we're really fixed, it's a, it looks decisive. And we can get attracted to that. We get attracted to political leaders who talk on that level. This is right. This is wrong. It's interesting. I mean, I, I know that Jimmy Carter wasn't a perfect politician. But what's interesting is how uh, he's often held up as like, um, like just an evil politician, you know, just not evil, but just like a real failure as a politician. And uh, and I think a lot of it was because he he was sensitive, you know, sensitive to how messy, <laughs> difficult it is to sort of have clarity about what to do. And so part of it is like asking what kind of world we want to live in. Do we want to live in a world? where our mind, because we're unwilling to feel insecurity, unwilling to open to you know, the fabric of life that isn't really, uh, you know, there's no like paint by the numbers, like how it's supposed to be, how we're going to save ourselves, save our civilization. You know, it's not laid out in any way. So are we going to, are we willing to open to that and find real beauty, like real beauty in being honest about that with each other. And be real honest about what it's like to be living together in this insecure place. Or are we going to pretend that somebody knows and that everybody else who disagrees is wrong? You know, are we going to live in that kind of world? <laughs> we know where that goes, right? You know. Oh, you think I'm wrong? It's just a matter of seeing who's bigger. I mean, it's very quick, quickly to sense of like, well, who's bigger? You know, who's got the bigger guns or the more money or the, you know, the power? Anyway, I'll leave it here. It'll be interesting to hear what people have to say. We'll probably pick up this topic one more week so we can practice all week long observing how aversion works. But if you have any thoughts about the talk, questions, Insights from your own life you'd like to share with the group? What comes to mind? Please say your name if you just decide to speak up. Yeah. My name's Aaron. Um, this, is like, this is like a thought. Uh, I remember when I was like in, in junior high, I'd drink like Fruitopia. It was like a super sugary fruit drink. And then, you know, hot Cheetos. And eventually my taste grew into something more of like, I guess, subtle. But so now I eat more like organic type things. But you know, it costs twice as much. And you know, my one of my friends, one of my good friends, he's he's extremely subtle in, in like seeing in just his perception, I think. And he eats, you know, hot dogs from Super America and and he doesn't complain. <laughs> And he doesn't do anything. He and he always has hot dogs in Super America. I mean, going to Costco, country. I mean, there's never a time when that doesn't exist, you know. And so he can, he's always content with what he has. And I'm always like, where is the co-op? And I can't, I can't eat that. Like I don't want to eat that. Like I've trained myself to not want. I can't even once I eat it, I'll just be unhappy for the rest of the day. So it's just it's confusing me because what is subtle? Like what would be a subtle thing? Because he t- and then now I was thinking, should I 
Did I try to be okay with eating this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So it's, just, it's just like relative yeah. and No, no, but it, it's a, I think it's a relevant point too because we can be attached to the gross and we can get attached to the subtle and afraid of the gross. But what we want is we want this balanced... See, right now we're out of balance because we're just addicted to the gross. So the point isn't to get attached to the subtle, it's to include it. And see, understanding the subtle helps us deal with the gross level of reality, what we do, what we say, whether we stand up and act or whether we sit down and listen. And so, um, yeah, maybe every once in a while having a hot dog from Super America is good. I, you know, I, I discovered a few years ago, after being a vegetarian for about 20 years, a strict vegetarian for 20 years, you know, I, I discovered I was really attached to being a vegetarian. You know, all kinds of rigidities in my mind and my life around being a vegetarian. Now I'm not a strict vegetarian. I mean, I'm mostly a vegetarian, but, you know, at times I eat meat, and I'm, I'm okay with that. And it just feels better not to be attached to this identity of being a vegetarian. I still prefer not to eat a lot of meat, you know, for all kinds of reasons. But I think it's nice not to... Uh, turn the world into good and bad. So don't, even though the talk may seem as if I was saying subtle is good, gross is bad, that, that kind of misses the point. The point is that we're missing the subtle. And when we include the subtle, we understand the gross. Without understanding the subtle, we don't really understand how to be in the world, how to you know, take care of everybody, how to make the world a better place. Thanks, Aaron. That was useful. Yeah. This is just a comment on that. Couldn't you also just understand the hot dog is the gross and the co-op is the subtle? Meaning you don't often get your co-op and you can get a hot dog or Although Super America sells apples and bananas, I think they're forced to. I think there's actually a law. <laughs> Probably drives some of the conservative people crazy, you know, these sort of regulations that uh, you have to have sort of healthy food in every menu. Anyway. Other thoughts about aversion? Yeah, Kevin. Well, I just, um, I think a lot about this, you know, especially about but taking time to just sit there and observe, um, you know, anger or uh, sadness. And I just, uh, man, I never, it's hard because I don't see a lot of people ever, I have to let sit there, literally, kind of just, you know, especially at work, you know, you look so stupid just sitting there doing nothing and kind of just going, okay, there it is, you know, there's, there's the aversion. I mean, that just uh, that happens so rarely. Uh, you know, it, you see someone just sitting there, like, just doing nothing and trying to, you know, it takes time to, like, go through those steps, you know, or the sit, you know, where's the subtle? Um, <coughs> Like even people here coming around, it just feels so awkward. 
a lot of people are a little more skilled. They don't have to just stop everything and go, what life you learn how you know, the fact that you just you can do it all fast and Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Hi, my name's Gary. Um, I talked about certain forces that give rise to aversion and anger. You're getting a little louder, Gary. Uh, I know there's individuals that give rise to aversion and anger in everyone's lives. It'd um, be family, uh, friends, uh, people that work, and so on. But a consistent basis, um, you know, and it's easy, it's tough to be a more of a sublime place like this here and talk about it, but when you're out there every day getting, you know, dealing with this, you know, sometimes it's like a jet engine, the same person just blasting at you, it's at work and so on. Um, Dama Pada has a, a version that says, do not associate with the fool, uh, this type of thing. Um, you talk about dealing with this with wisdom and skillful response to mindfulness and firmness. Would you say that that would be that an accurate way to, to deal with a constant source or individual that creates a version was a person that really you know, disrupts your your inner being or avoiding this altogether uh, as the Dalai Lama says disassociating with the fool fool being I assume what the Dalai Lama is saying that kind of some of us can be spiritually developed us yeah, I mean, if, the question is, of course, can you avoid that? If you can, then why haven't you, you know? Because I think you're right. It is good to avoid situations that are triggering uh, reactive patterns in us so that we're reinforcing patterns we know aren't helpful for ourselves or others. And the thing is, we have a lot of aversion to work with so we can develop skill without having those intensely aversive situations in our lives. So when we can, avoid the intensely uh, aversive situations that trigger a lot of strong hate and aversion. <coughs> develop our skill where it's less intense. That's just the general principle, right? But sometimes we don't have a choice, you know? We can't make this person go away. We can't avoid being around this person. So then we acknowledge that and we intentionally make this a training or a teaching, a teacher. Like some of you probably read Carlos Castaneda's books back in the day. And his teacher, Don Juan, talked a lot about petty tyrants and the power of petty tyrants. I think some of the, I mean, I just found some of the teachings in those books really right on, right in line with how the Buddha teaches. But the idea of a petty tyrant is somebody who knows exactly how to get under your skin and how we can, you know, in the appropriate situation, be really grateful because the strong tendency, like Ajahn Chah suggests, is to feel as if they're attacking us. Their ignorance, their wrong-headedness is attacking us. But because we've reframed it, they're my teacher. 
then we see, no, it's not like they're attacking me. It's I see them, I hear them, and this is what my heart does. It gets into this defensive, aggressive, helpless, you know, whatever the particular reaction is, state. And it creates suffering. And we get to practice not suffering in that situation. So when we do have those situations that are regular irritants for us, then when you're home, when you're safe, not right in the middle of it, then it clearly acknowledge in your mind, there's really no way I can avoid this. So I'm going to make this powerful resolve, this is my teacher. This is a gift from the universe. I'm not going to miss this opportunity. I'm certainly not going to use this opportunity to reinforce patterns that cause more suffering for myself and others. Enough is enough. This will be my teacher. I have faith, you know, say to yourself, I have faith that it is possible to coexist with this person, to interact with this person in the way that I have to interact with him or her, in a way where no suffering will arise. Now, I may not get there today, or this week, or this year, but I resolve to cultivate non-suffering in my interactions with this person. There is enough suffering on this planet. I resolve not to be contributing, it, contributing to it in my own heart, in his or her heart, around us. That's a very noble, this is something actually we could get behind. We could be inspired by this. Time for maybe one more. Louis, you want to finish this up? Oh, <laughs> Better make it good. <laughs> well, I was just listening, and um, there's nothing happenstantial about the petty tyrants and the people who uh, tend to be a pain in the butt. Uh, and it's like they're really not avoidable. And it's not only because they're in a role. And you get rid of them and somebody else will fill in that role for you. <laughs> because our growth kind of depends upon having those lessons. And there's something kind of, I don't know, uh, very organic about how life keeps presenting us with these opportunities to learn whatever our lesson needs to be. Um, I grew up in an environment where I was taught to not show my anger, wear a mask, or short circuit. And it worked for a long, long time. And I find that at this stage of my life, uh, I can't avoid being angry anymore. And and having emotions that I don't like. Yeah. But I, I think the thing that I'm learning is to have this attitude of embracing, making friends with those feelings, but not to make a place for them to sleep, have something to eat, make themselves comfortable <coughs> in my environment, yeah. uh, but to welcome them and let them go. And it takes time, but it's really very doable. I, I keep finding it um, unfolding for me. Thanks, Lars. That's a nice place to end.
Thanks for all the comments. Bring it next week, Maria. We'll hear your comments. Sorry to miss you. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words.